Hello, readers. Douglas London is a retired senior CIA operations officer who's telling the story of his time in the CIA and much more about the agency in the new book, The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. Doug, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's my pleasure. So what was your goal with The Recruiter? Well, wow, I can answer that in all sorts of ways. <laughs> Try to find the most honest and succinct response. You know, I had retired after 34 plus years of being a spy. So uh, it was a bit of a cathartic exercise for me. And I had always thought of writing a book about espionage. And I actually had wanted to write a novel because I thought, you know, I could write a novel which offers a, a real good feel for what it's really like without getting into sensitive areas. But as I started to put together story ideas, they were generally things that had actually happened to me. So I kind of tested the system. And part of my interest in writing the novel, actually, in the first place, was to make a point that the agency post 9-11 had sort of changed, if not lost its direction for those years. And I was trying to cast a story that portrayed that in a way that was and a, a sort of a love story about espionage, um, uh, a, a notation of how valuable espionage is to our daily lives, though people luckily don't think about it, know about it, have to, and that the agency was the right organization to do it, but had to get back on the right path. So it transitioned into a nonfiction work, partially because I started teaching at Georgetown University. And the reason that's relevant is that I retired in 2019, but I stayed on contract with the agency. I was doing some work for them. Um, and when I got my Georgetown job, they said, well, you can't work for us on contract anymore because if you're an academic, you have a public profile, you can't be a agency representative. And, and some of the stuff I did on the agency's behalf was to represent it to official foreign partners. So if I was writing some sort of opinion or, or something uh, about the agency, it was inconsistent. So it sort of moved me into the writing phase to begin with in terms of writing for journals. And my fiction work quickly became a nonfiction work. And I thought you did a great job of weaving all of those different things together and telling this story. And you're obviously not the first former CIA uh, operative, a former CIA employee who has written a book. And part of that process does include the CIA coming through everything that you've written to make sure that you aren't releasing or allowing sensitive materials. Interestingly, in the forward, you admit that the CIA pressured you both subtly and even overtly to not write this book. Why do you think they did so, Doug? It was not a, a great time for the agency. Um, part of my timing for leaving, even though I had so many years, was the difficulties in uh, doing my job. Uh, two years into the Trump administration at that time, the leadership of the agency, the national security establishment had politicized, I believed, intelligence and the consequences on our operations affected people. And when I mean that, I mean that in a very life and death sort of way. There's nothing holier to a human intelligence service than protecting its sources as well as its methods. So my book being somewhat critical was that of leadership that largely currently occupied the, the highest billets in the agency and they were not terribly pleased with some of my criticisms. And I can't get into the details of the pressure, but it, it was you know 
not all too subtle at times. And actually, as it turned out, they had to drop their pressure because they found themselves uh, legally vulnerable, which allowed me to, to move forward. And, and to their credit, to be totally balanced, um, their redactions could have been a lot worse. There were a number of redactions throughout the book. There were two entire chapters that they wanted out, one of which I try to negotiate, which is uh, Alex and the Targeters, which really speaks to the unfortunate, in my thought, uh, change in perspective and how we deal with human sources and how we value them and, and how we try to protect them, which I got in, but uh, you know maybe what was seven of originally a 25 page chapter where there was no other room. But that even being said, they could have taken an even a more stricter hand. Um, I was able to negotiate any number of changes. There was some areas that were non-negotiable such as issues like cover, which they're very sensitive about. Um, and um, we came out with, with an approved publication and they reviewed it an additional time mm. around the publication date and we're still not happy, but they had already given me an approval. And I did in fact make the changes that the editors wanted, but I didn't always make the changes exactly as they wanted them to be. So it was, it was a bit of a dance, but you know, at the end of the day, I, I had, I thought a product that still for a bottom line gave the reader an insight into the life of a case officer, the relationship with the case officer's agents, the dynamics that are beyond anything I've ever seen reflected on the pages or in screen that really puts you in the seat without compromising those assets, without compromising the operations. In a way, it's two books. It's that of spying and the art of it, and that of the lost art of it over a period of time because of some decisions I thought the leadership made and took over those 20 years, which were not in the agency's best interest. You just said spying. Why is the word spy a major impetus for this book? Well, uh, spying's cool. <laughs> just, to, just to be frank about it and candid and, and transparent, it's cool to be a spy. It's cool to spy. So the United States government paid me to steal. That's awesome. I could lie, cheat, steal, do all sorts of you know havoc against our adversaries overseas. None of those things could I do at home. So for good cause, right? So I, over the years, kind of felt in a way the privilege of being like, I don't know, a professional athlete who gets paid to do something that they love to do, which to them, they're, they're lucky to have some natural ability. I joined the agency. People ask me, oh, I joined the agency and, and not to steal your thunder if that's a question you want to ask, because I had no marketable skills. You know, I just, I didn't have a talent or a profession. I, I wasn't the most gifted student at school, but I was good at um, espionage. I was good on the street. I was good relating to people. I was good, to be frank, manipulating people. And in this case, in the interest of the United States government. So spying to me, I think is the right term um, because it's the actionable version of the acquisition of those secrets and what it takes to get them. So how did you end up in the CIA then if you were somebody with no marketable skills and uh, were at a pretty aimless place even as you were attending college? Yes, well, it's a it's a sad but often told tale. So, you know, I was uh, in the first generation of my family to go to college. My parents didn't even graduate high school. So it was a big deal to go to college. 
Um, my dad had passed when I was younger, in my early teens. Um, he had been a Marine. And I remember even as a, as a kid, you know, because I idolized my dad, I wanted to be a Marine. And my dad was like, you know, if you want to join the Marines, fine, go to college first, you know, and ideally go in as an officer because he was uh, an enlisted tank crewman during the Korean War. Um, proud of it, uh, but, you know, not not the cushiest life, or not not the best life. So that's what happened. I, I went to college and my first semester I did poorly didn't really like it. Uh, one, because I didn't kind of get to live the college experience. I um, I was not in the best economic straits. So I was living in the city in the, in the Bronx in, in an interesting apartment, paying my own way through school, working a bunch of different jobs, driving a cab, working as a security guard, you know, as a, as a salesperson, everything. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to join the Marine Corps. So my family persuaded me to, to okay, if you want to do this, you want to get this uh, out of your system, at least go in as a reservist because that's six months. And then if you like it, you could just stay. If uh, it may not have been the best decision, you can go back to school. And you know how, you know, kids are always saying your family's never right. Your parents are never right. My family was right. <laughs> <laughs> so 12 weeks of Paris Island and I graduated and I graduated with a meritorious stripe on my, my arm was miserable. And I realized I was too much of a nonconformist and I, I probably had some problems with authority to really make a life out of being a Marine. Very proud of it. Did my time, stayed in the reserves for six years, honorably discharged. Um, very proud of my time in the Corps. Uh, my, one of my sons went on to become a Marine. He was a Marine officer for years because uh, I always spoke well of it, but it was just not a, a good fit. So I, I went back to school um, probably a bit more invested in my studies, did a lot better, uh, did well at school, but still, uh, you know, it was the eighties, early eighties. And, uh, I was not really, you know, flush with job offers, um, other than what I was doing. I mean, I could keep driving a cab and whatever, but that's, you know, you think of a college degree, you're hopefully going to aspire to more. Um, so I just towards the end of college, was being considered for Merrill Lynch. And I don't even know if they're still around, you know, stock market group, you know, like some sort of junior, junior trainee program. But in the meantime, uh, I was trying to get into the foreign service, which is, there's a really high bar for the foreign service and, and for good cause. You've got to get through the written exam, the oral exam and all sorts of things. And um, I tried two years in a row, couldn't quite nail the written. It's, it was in my day complicated. You had to get two of one section and then like one of the electives. And I always missed one of the required sections, mm -hmm. but I had this great professor who like what I do now at Georgetown uh, is an adjunct. He was a career foreign service officer. He was an ambassador. Um, I was the most articulate erudite speaker I'd ever heard from. And he became my hero. And I thought I really want to become a foreign service officer. So what I didn't know, and I didn't learn until after I joined the agency for some time after he, since his last posting was at the United Nations, would share some of his insights with the agency uh, on diplomats he ran into who might be a good target, who he could provide some background on. And he also provided my name. And I could look at it this as a couple of ways, and I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. It was either one, he thought, oh my God, I got to keep this guy out of the foreign service, and sooner or later he's going to get in. Um, or, you know, he's really a better fit for CIA. I mean, he worked in the foreign service long enough to work with stations over the years to have a sense of agency officers he liked, didn't like, whatever. And for whatever reason, he thought well of me. I got a call one day out of the blue um, from a federal government official is how he identified himself. 
uh, invited me to a job fair. No further information. And, you know, I'm a senior in college coming to graduation and desperate for anything because it was either going to be Merrill Lynch or God help us all. I was going back to the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps had offered me all these different commissioning programs. I turned them all down. But finally, I was going to accept one because, you know, I wanted a career. And uh, it just worked out. I got down to the job fair. They told me who they were. A um, couple of interviews later, I started testing, taking the battery of tests that even today uh, candidates have to test for. And um, I lucked out because one of my interviewers, who was an old, crusty uh, AF division case officer, who I love to death, um, took a liking to me and thought, uh, you know, looking at my CV, my resume and credentials was like, you know, you don't really have the boxes checked, but I think he liked the personal experiences I related in terms of growing up in the city and some of the things I had overcome and some of the means in which I overcame them um, and pushed me at least to the next round and maybe helped me get a bit of a more level playing field because I was competing against people from like Stanford and Berkeley and Yale and University of Michigan. And, and I went to a lovely college, Manhattanville, uh, private school. They gave me a nice scholarship, uh, but not really a, you know an academic powerhouse uh, as such. So I lucked out and um, was able to do what I loved doing without knowing that it was something I'd love doing because who knows what it was for almost the next four decades. And there was obviously a lot of learning that goes into you being a trainee. Obviously, you have classmates around you who are also in the process of becoming CIA officers as well. And I don't think I realized this until reading this book, but the CIA has its own version of what is considered Hell Week with the Navy SEALs. What was your final orienteering exam like? <laughs> so uh, things are a little bit different in, the, uh, in training these days. Uh, in my day, we had a full-blown paramilitary program. And this was an homage to our OSS roots. And it's also a reflection of the demographics at the time. There were a lot fewer people in the 80s who had military experience. Mm. U.S. military had closed down greatly. And most of the candidates going through had no military exposure. I had been in the Marines, but again, I wasn't the best of the Marines. So uh, they wanted to give us 12 weeks. And it was sort of based on, in fact, it wasn't sort of, it was based on special ops training, but a very modified, more gentle version, but still not entirely gentle. So parts of it included escape evasion, counterinterrogation. You get captured and roughed up a little bit. We don't do any of that anymore. You jump out of airplanes, you pull out of helicopters. That was pretty cool. Um, but uh, orientation week, uh, orienteering week, that is, is land nav, right? So they, they teach you land nav. And again, you know, I had learned this in the Marines, but wasn't really great at it. Um, and it, you know, they teach you how to do it during the daytime, obviously, but in our day, in that day, uh, you were tested at night. It was this, you know, week of that um, and, and a really painful nighttime exercise. Now that's separate from, because each week was a separate cell of what you did from the escape and evasion hell week of being captured and roughed up and put in boxes and kept awake and sleep deprivation for, you know, a couple of days and whatever like that. But uh, for me, the orientation part was harder. Orienteering part was harder because I just, you know, I could barely find my way, you know, across the road. So uh, as, as it turns out, um, I kind of, and with, with all deference to my colleagues and, and the agency, I kind of cheated a little bit on, on the test. I cheated because um, somewhat out of luck or the, the, you went from 
you know, um, a marker to a marker. And I know there's a better word for it. You had to find your way, you take your grid cords and you move and you're moving through the woods. And I can't say where the farm is technically though. Anybody can see it online, but it's in a sort of swampy, nasty location, thorny bushes and, and critters that a, a, a city lad like me from the Bronx had not naturally encountered in his day-to-day -day course of, of life. Um, so it was just a, a pain dragging through this for hours and i finally get to um my last point where i had to go from one marker to the last one and i had to find my my pole and the pole was going to be located on a trail all parallel everybody's poles they had to hit the one they were designated for or as close to it and i came across this like swamp <laughs> that's what it was it's just like marshy and whatever like that it's dark you have no light it's the it's black of night. It's like two a.m. or whatever it was, and I thought, you know, screw this. I'm not going through this thing. So I did have my map, and there was a road, like a, a tertiary road, like a dirt road, not far off, but it was located on the map. I thought I can go to that, and I could parallel, roughly guesstimate for a number of the number of meters I I know I have to go to my next marker, and then just slip back into the woods and find my marker. Well, I mean, the spy gods were with me because um, I totally lucked out and, and I, I saw the lights coming from where the final markers were, where the instructors were waiting for us. And I slipped in and picked the best one, just totally random guess. And I hit exactly the marker I was supposed to get. So it was just fortuitous. Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, that counted and you ultimately do become yeah. a case officer in the CIA. Uh, one more question about your time as a student, because while you were a trainee, your chief officer told you and your fellow students to start each day by asking yourself, what are your own vulnerabilities? So what was your biggest vulnerability as a case officer as you were getting going with that job? That's a that's a really good question. And and I, I don't know what I thought of at the time. I don't know what, you know, as I was 22 or 23 when I went through the farm. So I, I really don't remember what 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 young Doug thought. I, I would say um, in reflection, I hope it was my own um, ego maybe that I had to beware of my overconfidence because I did have vulnerabilities. Everybody does. Everybody has issues and weaknesses. They need to be self-aware about it. They need to acknowledge it. Um, and it's healthy. I mean, everybody's got something. But the danger is when you deflect it, dismiss it, and your own insecurity causes you to overcompensate in um, inappropriate behavior or, or poor judgment and poor decisions. I'd like to think that's what 23-year-old me thought because that would have been the wise and correct choice. I might've still been so overconfident and, and whatever that I didn't and thought it was something else. But I would say me at the time and, and even me at any point in life, those are always things that whole self-awareness thing, you know, knowing you're going to make mistakes, knowing that you're not perfect, knowing that there are a lot of the smarter people, and particularly for a spy, knowing that you could get caught and, and taking seriously the tremendous consequences on your agent and on your country. Um, uh, I don't uh, think I was mature enough at the time, probably, but that's what my answer should have been. Yeah, it's interesting there's a common cliche out there, fake it till you make it. And mm -hmm. while a lot of young people do try to abide by this, because the reality is that when most of us enter the real world, we don't totally understand what's going on. The stakes for you faking it till you make it as a CIA case officer are much higher because if you fake it 
poorly enough, you are not going to make it. Yeah, no, that's true. And, you know, what we really, and I, I also taught as an instructor and a, and a curriculum chair down there, um, the most important characteristic after we've already screened you, I mean, if you're, if you've made it, if we've selected you particularly to be a case officer, an ops officer, it has more to do with your character traits really, um, than your uh, intellect. I mean, you gotta be smart enough, mm. uh, but clearly I'm an example that you don't have to be like super smart. You have to be, you have to have excellent judgment. You have to be flexible. Um, you have to be empathetic and relate to people well but you absolutely positively have to have the highest standards of integrity. And it's kind of interesting when you think about that because you're a spy, you're, you're manipulating, you're lying, you're, you're doing all these different things, but to your country, to your government, you've got to be completely faithful because you know, you go out as a case officer on the street, you're by yourself. There's no team. There's also no cavalry. Um, and it's not often documents you're bringing back. You're, you've got a meeting with a very sensitive asset, uh, you're debriefing this agent during a, a condensed walk where you're looking for surveillance. And what you say has to be what you really heard. You know, we have to trust and depend on your integrity that you're reporting faithfully what happened and what didn't happen. And if there were any problems, you have to acknowledge it. And that's where the ego comes in. Because, you know, let's say an officer took shortcuts. Let's say an officer might have thought he or she had surveillance, but didn't report it, didn't want to get in trouble. That could be catastrophic to the, the source, to the agency, to the person themselves. There's no dash cam on you when you go out, like you know, police officers have these days. So integrity is at the forefront of, of the traits and qualities that of course any any member of the agency has to have. But I tell you, when it comes to a case officer on the street where there's nobody looking over their shoulder, it's paramount. And just to provide some clarification for those who are watching and or listening right now, the agent that you're referring to is the individual that you have established a relationship with that is, ha is helping you with intel. You are actually the case officer in the field, and your job as a case officer is to find individuals, establish a rapport with them enough to where you can eventually ask that person to help the CIA gather information. And oftentimes you're doing so in territories that are hostile towards Americans. I mean, the stress level of this job is just off the charts. But at some point, as I just mentioned, you do have to ask that question. Will you help the CIA here? Why do you even have to ask an agent's wife at one point for permission to help the CIA and how'd that turn out? Well, don't don't try that at home. At least so said my my chief of station. <laughs> First of all, that's a really good definition. I think a lot of people refer to CIA officers as agents because they think of FBI special agents and stuff. But as you said, the handler from the CIA is the representative of the U.S. government, regardless of what their cover is. And the agent is the penetration, the spy within their organization, government service. Um, the story to which you're referring to was actually early in my career. It was during my my first tour, and. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just really ironic. I'd already, um, I was fortunate. I'd already made a couple of recruitments, uh, which was precisely as you say, uh, it's a bit of a bait and switch, right? I'm using whatever my cover is to um, disarm someone, right? Uh, to be able to forge a relationship that becomes um, intimate. And I use the word intimate and people go, oh, intimate, and not physically, but intimate in terms of personal, right? That they're willing to give you a glimpse into them sufficient that you could assess them to determine if they're one, most importantly, do they have access to the information you want? Because as, as fun as spying is, and it is, 
you don't spy for fun. You spy to answer questions. You answer questions that decision makers in the U.S. government need to know in order to protect the country's safety, military, defense, whatever it might be. Um, so I'd already gotten a little experience and spying um, is really uh, experiential based, I find. You, you take someone with traits, uh, you send them to spy school, you give them some techniques, but it's that being in the box and, and getting a sense of how people react. And I will tell you, having been fortunate and, and, and worked with people from all over the world and a lot of different agents, everybody's different. Every human being is unique. I think that's one of the things I love about the work is because everyone is in their own way fascinating, right? Everybody's got a backstory. Think about just sitting in a coffee shop and watching people. Every person has a story, a backstory. It's, it's fascinating to me. So this chap, um, things were going like really well. In fact, I would say better than my earlier cases, which were a little challenging. And I had to really kind of work a little bit harder to get them to trust me, to get them to, to work, cooperate with the agency, because that's no small thing when you actually hear the question, right? Even when people start assuming, okay, I know what Doug's really up to. I know who he represents, but I'm just going to ignore it until slapped in the face of it. And totally expected, by the way, when you're at the start of the yeah. learning curve like that. Yeah, absolutely. So this this guy, it was like textbook. I mean, we'd gotten to a point in our relationship where he was meeting me clandestinely already because he knew that meeting a U.S. official wasn't a good, wasn't allowed, actually. Uh, met me clandestinely, had been providing me what first were like little bits and pieces to like even documents from his government office. And he was accepting gifts, you know, oh, you know, here's for the kids, you know, for for whatever holiday, for Idalada, whatever like that. Um, and he was taking all that. And all that being said, I was like, well, this is going to be just like a walk in the park. I've just got to formalize it because you do. It, it, you, an agent really needs to understand what they're doing. So one, you can task them directly. And you task them in order to help protect them from what they're doing and make sure they're not overreaching or making mistakes using good tradecraft. It allows you to test them so that you can stand behind their reporting because they're under some degree of control. There's motivations and there's a track record of having had them do things and you can see whether things are worn out or, or they respond in certain ways or you could kind of keep an eye on them in some occasions. So you've got to ask them at the end of the day that, you know, it's not just two buddies talking and you're, you like me and maybe you like a little gift here or there. It's like, you're working for the U S government. So I get to that point, but I thought it's going to be just like an easy thing to do. And when I actually pitched him and I said the three, you know, famous letters, he like freaked out, totally unexpected, totally melted down in my car, screaming, sweating, it was because it was in a car because we were meeting clandestinely. So I picked him up someplace, some dark corner off the road and driving in the shadows and pulled to the side, looked him in the eye, pitched him. And he's like, oh, my God, you're a spy. You work for CIA. I'm thinking like, no, as Sherlock, we've been doing this for a while. <laughs> but but he totally melted down. And I had like, you know, immediate visions. One of my chief of station lynching me from the from the chandelier but of being, you know, arrested, thrown out, you know, whatever is going to happen, because he's going to report this to, his, you know, the authorities. So I calmed him down and, uh, at, uh, you know, try to talk him through it, talk him off the, the ledge. But he said, you know, my biggest concern is that my wife, you know, uh, my wife, 
uh, he would say knows about you, knows that we're friends, knows that you work for the U.S. government and you're you're helping us now and then with a gift here or there, right? But she would never, you know, tolerate this and on and I and, and I've got to ask her. And, you know, it's 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 not unusual for an agent to tell their spouse, and it's not the worst thing in the world. It just has to be done in collaboration with the case officer. So you could kind of help them manage it. Sometimes you discourage them because do they really want to put that burden on their spouse who then sort of becomes guilty by conspiracy or has to protect the relationship because they're aware of it? Um, in some ways, uh, sometimes because you wonder, are they going to report it themselves to the authorities? So I was like, okay, um, you could tell your spouse. It's like, no, I can't tell my, my, my spouse. You have to tell my wife. I was like, you want me to tell your wife? He says, yeah, you know, she'll like from you, you know, she, she's probably going to receive it better than if I try to tell her, you need to get her permission. So I agreed to this, which my, my chief of station had a, a fit over and, and basically said, you know, whoever's coming to this meeting is not his wife. It's going to be a counterintelligence officer and, and you're going to be leaving there in shackles. And I was like, very confident. No, it's going to be fine. And I'll convince her. Of course, I wasn't quite convinced myself I convinced her. Who knew? But I, I told him and he didn't want me to do it. But at the end of the day, he was like, you know, it's your funeral. I'll be OK. I'm just going to say that you didn't work for me because uh, the chief station in this country was declared to the local service. There was an official relationship. I wasn't, obviously. Uh, he would just say this is some overeager idiot from, you know, another part of the government and thinks he's James Bond, he's a jerk, I have nothing to do. <laughs> so um, time comes to the meeting, whatever number of days later, clandestine pickup, pick him up, pick his wife up. The, the kind of choreography didn't quite work where she was gonna be and he was gonna be, but it was fine. And we start you know, driving and talking and she's actually first very nice, she's a little nervous. She's like, you know, I wanna thank you, you've been so kind to my husband and to our family. And, Da, da, da. And I said, well, thank you for saying that. But, you know, you've also been very kind to me. And I started going through my pitch. And basically, I had to pitch her. And, you know, a pitch has to be very specific. It has to, uh, there's no like ambiguity. It's not like, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod. It's like, here's what I want your husband to do. Um, here's how we're going to manage it. And here's what he's going to receive in terms of compensation from the United States government. And it wasn't a bad amount. And I'm just throwing a figure out of the air. So let's say it was a thousand dollars a month. I'm sure it wasn't. It was more. It was less. Whatever it was, and she's taking all this in, and, and this is largely through uh, third language, by the way. It's not English, so it's not my native tongue. So, you know, I've got to be careful to get the nuance and the tone, and that I'm receiving all this right. Yeah. And uh, and she pauses for a moment, and and I'm driving during this thing for security reasons. I have to be moving. And you really shouldn't do that when you pitch someone. But I had already stopped where I started the pitch, but it just felt I had to move because there were people in the area. And so it continued after I was driving. And uh, I'm looking in the rearview mirror. I'm still trying to talk. And, and she pauses. Next to her here is a, just a crack of her open hand across the guy's face, twice, actually. And she starts speaking rapidly in the language. And I could barely keep up with it. But I knew she was basically cussing him out and thinking, oh, my God this is it. I'm going to jail, whatever. Um, and then she pauses and she starts speaking slowly again and, and, and in a very calm nature. And she starts apologizing to me because her husband is so stupid that you're going to pay him for this. And he said, no, of course he's going to do it for you. <laughs> so 
you know, it was a great relief uh, at the time. And of course, with any operation, just because she said so didn't mean that it was so. So you have to test the agent, make sure that it's really coming together. But he turned uh, turned out to be a very productive uh, agent for a number of years, well past my time in country um, fortuitously and because of his wife, thankfully. Guess we now know who wears the pants in that relationship, Doug. In that family. And interesting enough, because the culture, which is very male dominated, mm -hmm. and that she, as I found in many of those relationships, it actually was the woman who called the shots, which was kind of a fascinating learning experience for me being in, in that part of the world. That's a great point. All right, I'm going to ask you about one more story uh, because I was also very amused by this one. There are plenty more beyond these two for anybody wondering right now. This barely even scratches the surface of him giving uh, really cool versions of uh, of things that happened with him and explaining the process of gathering intel. How did an unintended sexual tension between you and a potential female <laughs> agent create an even more awkward encounter between you and your family with said agent? Yeah, well, one of the things I try to do in the book is uh, not just try to depict myself as some superstar superhero. I, I screwed up. Um, anybody does. It's a human business. It's about human relations and, and such like that. And it's also real life. So you really do have a family. I mean, if you're undercover, as I was for uh, all those years, you know, your family, uh, at least your kids don't know what you're really doing until they're maybe older. But uh, if you're married, your partner uh, certainly does. And they have to, even if they don't work for the agency. And uh, in this case, my, my wife did not. So I, uh, this was my second tour. So I was still kind of young and you know, I would say young and arrogant, but I'm still probably arrogant. I'm just old and arrogant now. <laughs> but um, it was very unusual at the time for male case officers to try to recruit female targets. This is the eighties. Um, and it's hard to imagine thinking the eighties was modern when I was in the eighties, but you know, it's like lots of years ago. So uh, the agency didn't have a lot of female case officers at the time, but it had some, and there were actually a couple at our station and really good ones too, a lot more experienced than me. But I, I bumped into this, this female official from a country of great interest to in the United States. Uh, I met her at some event because uh, a case officer spends a lot of time trolling as well. They go after specific people by contriving circumstances to meet them, which I did, but they're also trolling at different um, venues where they might meet folks among the targets that they're looking for, particularly in, in certain countries and capitals. And this capital was big and had a lot of um, interesting people who were not friends in the United States there. And I met this woman, we hit it off, it was fine. Um, we had like, um, a lunch or two and such like that, but, you know, and I say in the book, recruiting an agent has some similarities to dating, right? Mm. Um, you're cultivating someone, their, their trust. And when you're dating, you're doing this obviously in a, with good intentions, honest and stuff like that. Um, as a spy, you're doing a bait and spit, switch because you can't meet someone at an event and go, hi, Doug London spy, and I want to recruit you to commit treason against your country. That wouldn't go over well, probably in most cases. So it's like, hi, I'm Doug London. I do blank. And uh, wow, uh, you're interested in climate change too. Well, so am I. That's what I do. Or you're a stamp collector. Oh my gosh, I just got this latest set of stamps. You, you want to see them with me? Let's talk about them. So it's a bait and switch to allow you time on target 
so that they're disarmed to to trust you to begin to impart things in conversations that you're manipulating and directing without them realizing it by techniques you understand that that are good that are non-threatening that open what we call conversational gates issues that you can follow up that fill in the blanks for you in terms of who's this person what do they do what are they like uh, what are their hopes dreams fears that sort of things that i could leverage in a positive way because we don't course people we could talk about that later if you want um to think you know cooperating with the cia would actually be good for me and my country but um you know you're being nice you're being you know kind and generous you're laughing at every joke ha 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 you're being flattering and stuff like that uh and i never once considered one because i was married and very open about being married and i already had kids and uh and it's not like i look like jason bourne or james bond in any way shape or form um but i got the sense um after a couple of these lunches that she thought my intentions were i don't know to say honorable dishonorable because my real intentions I don't know if they were honorable, dishonorable. Um, so I thought, oh, it's a problem. So I talked it over with the two female case officers who were brilliant and wonderful and said, you know, Doug, you're going to have to turn this over. You're too far down the road. She thinks you're interested in her. She thinks you're a married guy. And she's a professional woman who doesn't want us, you know, a real relationship. She wants something like this. So um, you're going to have to move on. Um, I said, well, I, you know, isn't there another way? And they were like, well, you can turn over to one of us and she'll get the hint or whatever. Uh, but this is not going to end well for you. But this was still a fairly young version of me who thought, nah, I could do it. I can make it work. So I had this brilliant inspiration. All I got to do is invite her home, you know, for the next time. And you don't really want to do that usually because you want to disconnect your agents from your home in case your home's under surveillance and people are watching and they take note of who comes and goes. But I thought, you know, the local government won't be too worried about this country. They're worried about their own people. So even if they're keeping an eye on me, probably okay. Um, I get her home. She sees my wife, my kids. She sees that this is totally innocent, that I'm just a nice guy. And we carry on happily. You know, one of the things a case officer is trained to do is to account for everything that could go wrong so that you've got a plan to go right into effect when things go wrong. And also to have the flexibility to know you can't plan for everything and have to often pivot dynamically quickly to circumstances that just come up. Well, I could not have conceived of the circumstances that came up when this woman reluctantly came to my home. I had to really push her to do so because she's like, why are we going home? Why don't you come to my apartment or whatever? I was like, uh-oh. I said, no, this is great. You'll meet the wife, meet my kids. It'll be super fun and da-da-da and all that kind of good stuff. And she agreed, maybe thinking, boy, this guy's trying to like hide in plain sight, which you actually never do as a spy, by having the wife know me and, and he'll be able to get away from seeing me, which was, you know, not like mine. So it just went downhill from the moment she pressed the doorbell because she hit the doorbell, my, my two young sons and a dog all come running down the stairs, excited, running to the front door, open the front door, and my dog jumps on her, uh, which was a bad start because she wasn't really comfortable with dogs, and this was a big dog, and also relieved himself at her feet. Mm. Not a great first impression. <laughs> Um, did what I could to save the moment, brought her in, uh, 
let her clean herself up. Uh, but then my sons, who were usually very well-mannered, even though they were really little, were just, I don't know, uh, they were just out of control. They were like jumping on her, grabbing her purse, going into her purse. Uh, and she wasn't a woman particularly comfortable with children. Um, so that was a little problematic. I tried to calm the kids down while I got drinks for her and juice boxes for the kids. I go into the kitchen after having introduced my wife to her uh, to check on things because I heard some clatter in there. There was like a fire in the kitchen. One of the dishes had caught fire. So there's smoke and we're trying to put that out. And then I hear screams coming back from the living room, run back out there to find that uh, one of my sons had taken her purse and emptied it on the ground with her very nice expensive sunglasses hitting the marble floor and cracking. And my other son had grabbed her beer, drank it, and then spitted the beer back into it. By that point, the brunch was over. <laughs> uh, and uh, I never saw or heard from that woman again. So uh, for all the contingencies I had planned for, I hadn't planned for all of them. Yeah, it's impossible to plan for sitcom-level hijinks, Doug. You'd think, yeah. But these things really happen. I mean, that's what that's life. And spying is life. And, yeah. you know, life happens. So you ended up having five kids you talked about earlier in this conversation. Why did you actively discourage each of them from joining the CIA? <laughs> My kids are, are thankfully a lot smarter than me. Uh, <laughs> they have a lot more talent and skills. Um, and um, I, I've, I have great, it's kind of bittersweet because they all want to do public service. And my oldest went to the Navy. He's still in the Navy. He's an officer. He, um, my younger son was in the Marines, did two tours in Afghanistan. Uh, my oldest daughter is a clinical psychologist for the Veterans Administration. She treats vets with all sorts of PTSD problems and substance abuse problems. I mean, just people who really give him back. And, and my two youngest are just, one's coming out of college and one's still in college right now. And she's got real marketable skills because she's a super brilliant engineer. But I wanted them to have an easier life. Um, spying for me was fun. Like I said, it was great joy, but it's challenging. And, and the biggest challenge I found was on family and on family life. And work-life balance is hard at the agency in any career occupation. I think it's hardest for an operations officer, a case officer, because you live that life. You have to do a lot of things to establish a profile, a pattern of life, activities, times, things that you're always out and about doing that keep you from having as much family time. And, and you have to understand also, I fully admit, I wasn't the most mature uh, younger fellow. I think I gained a lot of smarts about trying to juggle a little bit better. Uh, but I was so about my job and so about being on the street and, and doing my thing that I missed a lot. And it takes a toll. I mean, my family was evacuated from countries, I don't know how many times because of civil war, terrorism, things blowing up, the embassy blowing up, all sorts of nastiness. It's, it's, it's a hard life on your kids and it's, it's a hard life on them and their kids, if they have kids. And, and I wanted them to be, you know, hard work. Uh, doctors, lawyers, engineers, you know, professionals of some sort where nobody was shooting at them, things weren't likely to blow up, though these days in America, it's so scary, right? Uh, that they would likely be a little safer, would make more money because uh, you're not going to get rich working 
in the CIA. Uh, I've been comfortable largely because we lived overseas for so many years um, and in austere places where, or dangerous places where there's a bit more of a premium pay, but you know, you're not gonna be rich. Um, and I wanted an easier, better life. And obviously my first three totally didn't listen to me <laughs> and all either join the military or supporting the military but love what they're doing and, and love service and stuff like that. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping with my youngest two, um, they'll still go private sector and, and maybe uh, finance their dad's retirement in his golden years. <laughs> Do you think that that lifestyle instilled a sort of resiliency and grit in them because they have no choice but to learn how to be adaptable even at a younger, uh, young age like that? You know, I talk about that in my book because I think and I talk about foreign service kids in general, um, kids who grow up overseas working, you know, their parents work for the government. Absolutely. I mean, imagine they've got to start a new school every two years or three years, but in a new country, uh, in a school where they might be the only American. And that happened in some cases um, in environments where sometimes they're locked down for security reasons or there's health issues. We were living in Africa uh, during, during the height of the AIDS um, epidemic there. And it was just devastating to lose people that they knew. I mean, they were being confronted with death uh, every, all the time as, wow. as youngsters. So they saw poverty, they saw hardship, they, they saw beggars, you know, little kids storming their cars, just breaking your heart. So the juxtaposition of the lives that they had and came from and the circumstances they had to live in really made them, I think, one, amazingly empathetic to people. You know, they never saw people in color. We had people of all ilks in our in our home, treating them with deference and respect, you know, normally because I was working. But they were, you know, every ethnicity and race and color. And to them, they were all uncle and auntie, hmm. you know, uh, and they were people they respected. And they became very social because they got used to talking to adults and 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 have an ability to like interact with anyone and not be intimidated and likewise be very flexible and be very considerate of others because they saw their parents always being good hosts, right? Always being good hosts and respectful. So they're always acting as good hosts. So hard as it was, the lives, I think, as they'll tell you themselves, made them better people. And they are just the five of them, just the most amazing human beings and just such good, caring people but at a price it, it wasn't it wasn't easy at times you know i've had kids evacuated on their own being on airplanes crossing the world at the age of eight or 10 or 12 because of you know a war going on or like that that's hard on an eight 10 or 12 year old doing that and your parents are you're you know are left behind or whatever or evacuated in the middle of school years because of crises in the country they were in and getting thrown into not only a new school but like midterm mid-year um, but, um, you know, they come away, as you suggest, with an amazing resilience, um, big hearts. Uh, and it could go the other way, too. I mean, I, I know foreign service kids who, you know, had real strange under those circumstances. They tended to more be foreign service kids who had been growing up already in America mm. in a suburban life or something and then got thrust into that life, as opposed to my kids who all from the time they were babies grew up overseas. Interesting. So every case officer faces a crossroads, a sort of crisis of consciousness, as you put it. What was your most profound crossroads? 
Yeah, um, I speak to that. I, I think I had a couple, but I think the the most um, impactful one and the one that I still carry some good with me is um, I was in a, a conflict zone um, base as the chief of base, uh, handling a very sensitive uh, counterterrorist agent, an agent in, in quite frankly, Al Qaeda. And uh, it was a really great case. We had uh, brought him along, um, helped to move him up the ranks in the organization. He was more of a support type, which were really the best agents because they don't have to pull triggers or blow things up, but they know what's going on. They know the secrets because they provide some of the support for all that. And his access was getting better and better to the point that he was being pulled into non-governed areas of this country where he was dealing with leadership elements of the group, which required a great deal of um, vetting on their part, where you know they would strip him naked, look to see if he had any beacons or communications device. They would question him, rough him up sometimes before they would let him meet very senior people. And every move he made up the ladder, it became harder and harder and scary for him. And this guy was, not only was he a terrorist, but he was a very mild-mannered guy. I mean, just not not really cut out for this life. Um, at, at this point in the relationship, he had developed a, a really good position of access and had been drawn into what was a plot in the United States, a homeland plot. Peripheral, his piece of it, but enough to let us know there was a homeland plot and to give us a very general sketch of it, because at that point, his need to know within Al-Qaeda, that's all it allowed for. Um, but he came to me uh, at a meeting and meeting him was we would call it a high threat meeting uh, because every time you have an agent like that, uh, particularly when they go into the badlands and come back, you never know what's happened. Um, did they turn? Did they unwittingly bring the bad guys with them? Are the bad guys following them to see what they're up to? So you go through a lot of extra steps, which I can't detail, but to protect yourself, your team and them. Um, and it was, you know, it was gritty. And we were in a city already where it was you know like living in the middle it was in the middle of kind of a, a conflict zone and we were a target in that country and we were small that's what made us kind of effective hmm. and he came to me and he said i can't do this anymore he said you know my heart my nerves you know the next meeting i go it's even going to be worse than this one this one they they kept me in in detention for two days they kept interrogating me they roughed me up uh, and, and, and I just know they're going to find out I'm going to admit to them and they're going to torture me and kill me. I can't do this. And, you know, worked through the issue. And at this point, you know, a component of running a clandestine source is suitability. Are they up to it? Even if they have the access and can get you the secrets because of precisely what he said, it does, you no good. It does them no good. Your job is to protect them. If they get caught. Uh, they're not up to it, or they get you uh, in danger, they put you in danger, or they just can't manage this anymore. And so um, I went back to my headquarters, I, I um, reflected it as such with my recommendation that we're going to have to bring this guy back a little bit, let him let him come up with an excuse that he'll give you an organization why he can't travel as much, which means he can't go into the badlands as much. He'll still have some access, he'll still know people, he just won't be able to get any more in this homeland plot. Well, the homeland plot had already been briefed to the White House, and it was a big deal, as, as limited our insight was on it at the time. Um, 
and people were pushing for more. I mean, there's always more, 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 right? Give us more information, uh, which then poses dangers to a case anyway, because every time you meet an agent, that's the dangerous time. Um, every time you task that to do something, that's a dangerous time. You try to limit those times so that you could try to manage the risk because there's risk in espionage. Your job as a, as a case officer is managing risk. Um, at the very highest levels of my organization, uh, and I can't say precisely where, but I'll just say at the very highest levels, uh, th this was big business. They were uh, making some, getting some equity out of, you know, being an agency that almost faced, that faced an existential threat for having failed, if you would, though I don't totally subscribe to that, to uh, deflecting 9-11 or keeping 9-11 from happening was now providing, you know, really good intelligence on another Homeland plot, which we're now on top of. And the very senior officer who was micromanaging uh, basically said, no, you're going to keep this guy working because you have to. Uh, we're already briefing to this White House. We can't go back and say we've lost uh, access because your guy is too scared and you're not willing to do the needful to, to keep him working. So I argued uh, to the extent I could, um, but uh, it wasn't an argument I was going to win because at this person's level, that was all there was. And moreover, he said to keep him from being so spooked and to lower the profile, he micromanaged a, a, a minimization of some of the security procedures we used to meet him, which put a bigger profile of us uh, going out on the street. Um, but kept us all safe. Uh, kind of sounds a little bit to me like the coast bombing in 2009, where it was the lack of safety precautions that led to that catastrophic event that killed seven of my colleagues. Uh, and this was a forerunner to it. So I reflected and what were my choices? Um, I could follow my sword. I'd be relieved certainly of uh, my job, my command, and who knows what else. Um, I could try to convince this guy knowing that it wasn't really uh, in his best interest. And I took the latter, which, you know, was a selfish step to take. And in a very long and painful meeting full of tears on both of our sides, I knew him well enough to know what were the buttons to push to get him to agree. And I did. And he did agree. And he went back in. He, he did while I was there. He would later change his mind when I... I was succeeded and turned him over to somebody uh, and basically stopped going into the Badlands and saying he still was because the stress just got to him. But um, he went in. Uh, luckily, he lived because he made the decision sort of to like self-terminate in a way, mm. which we, you know, my successors eventually caught on to um, because, you know, he just couldn't do it anymore. And um, I still, you know, over the years, I believe that he's alive and well and did pretty well because he was he was compensated pretty well for the risk he took. The intelligence through the time of my tenure was really good intel and actually helped us disrupt um, the operation by putting eyes on some of the pieces we knew were, were already there. Um, so he lived happily ever after. Um, hopefully, bore no malice to me. I still think did I do the right thing? Should I should I have fallen on my sword, ending my career at the time, but for the right reasons, or 
you know, did I just fool myself to say, well, they'll just find somebody to replace me who'll do it anyway. And I still don't really know the answer to that question. Hmm. So you just mentioned 9-11 briefly. How did September 11th and the 2003 invasion of Iraq, quote, fundamentally alter the agency's soul, as you put it in this book? 9-11, for those um, who were around and recall it, and certainly those who have read, uh, really was um, not just devastating to our country, but the entire world, obviously, with ramifications we still feel today, 20 years later, 21 years later. But for the agency, it was an existential threat to their existence. So the CIA doesn't really have like a lobby. You know, it's, it's a clandestine organization. It can't publicize its successes. It can't lobby people because it's got big contracts. You know, so compared to the Department of Defense, the FBI, um, we're really on our own and, and really rather small. DOD is this behemoth of an organization with billions of dollars literally going to contractors and industry and with people who get a piece of the pie. The agency, what makes it um, among the attributes that make it good is the fact it's agile, it's mobile, it's small. So the CIA, uh, in my opinion, having lived through it and having actually um, spoken to the 9-11 Commission because of my role, uh, I was in um, the field at the time and ran, was running CT operations and including running a, a, an Al-Qaeda source. Uh, wasn't in not trying to warn people that something big this way was coming, but not sharing all the information and details it had, which could have led to closer supervision or oversight of at least three of the attackers while they were in the United States. And that was a sin. And a sin that has very much so been rectified where the default now of the agency is to disseminate, communicate, share, and to include other agencies who might, who might have a role, particularly on anything domestic, particularly on homeland-related events. But the agency at the time, having been there, uh, really thought it was going under. Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense at the time, was no friend of the agency. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld um, felt that the agency made him look bad, in a sense, in Afghanistan by being the first in, first on the ground. DOD had challenges getting even its special forces deployed on the ground and the agency was there within 15 days i think of 9-11 collecting intelligence supporting military operations i mean it it did the job so you take that uh and of course the 9-11 investigation was going on and then iraq where the cia made a um un unforgivable mistake of uh, stewing the intel to please the White House, particularly Vice President Cheney, who was at the agency all the time, and unfortunately cherry picking, um, sort of picking bits and pieces of intelligence that supported their contention that, you know, Saddam had supported 9-11, Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, Saddam was gonna attack us if we didn't attack him first. Why I, I know the history books now, and there's any number of studies that show the Bush-Cheney administration was determined to invade Iraq before they came to office and really believed that Saddam had a hand in 9-11, all of which has been refuted. I mean, Saddam was evil, but he wasn't involved in 9-11. So taken together, uh, the agency's credibility, reputation with the US public, uh, had no defenders, looked like it was, it, it was in jeopardy of going down or being 
broken apart piecemeal and fed into DOD or law enforcement or whatever, because you've got to remember, um, most there's 18 U.S. intelligence agencies, actually, believe it or not, uh, and most of them belong to the Department of Defense. So, you know, look it up. Um, CIA was designed to be a civilian organization deliberately so that it would not have the bias as a policymaker or, or the bias of an establishment designed to fight wars uh, and to be sort of a coordinator of intelligence and the manager of intelligence information separate from the military and separate from having a policymaker arm. In fact, the director of central intelligence was never thought to be a cabinet member. There were at times, and now it's a DNI who's the cabinet member. Sorry, just a little trivia background just to kind of flesh this out. The agency leadership looked at itself and thought, how are we going to survive? What do we have that will protect us? Is there anything we have that's unique that the other, at that time, 16 intelligences don't have? The agency's charter is collect foreign intelligence, conduct expert analysis, and conduct covert action at the direction of the president. The CIA is the only U.S. institution that has that charter for covert action. It has the charter for it. It has the capabilities for it. And again, just a little kind of background, covert means deniable. Lots of U.S. government agencies do clandestine operations, secret operations, the military does, but they're not deniable. The, the deniability of covert action means if we, the U.S. government, try to overthrow somebody, blow something up, kill somebody, we can go, we didn't do it. Hmm. That's the law. There's a member and a notification. Congress has to review it. There's oversight. There's all sorts of steps involved. It has to be legally directed, supported, but we can lie about it because the CIA does it. And the CIA is a civilian outfit. So we don't have to worry about military people getting in trouble with the Vienna Convention, the Geneva Convention, compromising the obligation of other governments to respect those privileges and rights that our military has should they be caught and captured and what have you. See, it doesn't, we're spies, we get shot, what the hell. So what type of covert action could we do that would get the president to sort of protect us? Well, what problems did the White House have in the, after 9-11 and through 2003? One, it was scared to death there'd be another homeland attack. It was, what could we do to stop that when a lot of the terrorist leaders have migrated into Pakistan, a sovereign country of which we're not at war, which will not let U.S. military personnel into country, which at this point, they themselves, the Pakistani government, wouldn't go into the federally administrative tribal area up in the northwest frontier because they had no control up there. CIA had been developing genetic capabilities. Um, which were basically rooted off intelligence collection platforms. And I'm using this language on purpose because I have boundaries that I have to respect for the agency, but everybody knows what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And they had perfected, and they did, by God, they had perfected these technologies and platforms and technique to just, particularly over the years, to near perfection. I would tell you that any covert lethal strike that the CIA might have conducted was almost always collateral civilian free. They, we may not have killed this person, may have been better not to, but the lethal action was against the person we were targeting. The same I can't say, unfortunately, for the military, but there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it's the volume, some of it is the, their, their TTPs, the way they do things. They have a different system of doing things. We're a small surgical 
what have you. Um, so we were able to do that for the president, go into Pakistan uh, and find, locate, and remove terrorists from the battlefield. There were also thousands of uh, detainees, uh, some of whom were very high value, none of whom the FBI could take into custody, including those we knew for sure were involved with 9-11. No doubt about it from the intelligence, but none of which you could take in court. You know, talking about uh, Ramzi bin Asib, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, you know, those who like take pride and yeah, that was me or whatever. Uh, the CIA offered not only clandestine detention facilities or covert detention facilities, but unfortunately, which a lot of us, most of us didn't know then, a um, enhanced interrogation program, which really contradicted what we do uh, as a spy service, which is collaborate with our sources, which is partner with them, motivate them, even if they're bad people, even if they're detainees, it's not coercion and it's certainly not torture. Um, White Houses were very happy with those, but by crossing those lines, refocusing the agency is essentially a paramilitary arm of the US government to conduct a war that the military couldn't, at least in Pakistan, which is where Al-Qaeda was at the time, and then progressively became Yemen and Syria and North Africa, some of which, again, the US military couldn't go, but covert action authorities would allow the agency to go there and continue their work. Um, we lost our focus on being an elite spy service, and we started to adopt a very militarized culture. The agency was full of smart asses like me. Um, people who had integrity would ultimately salute and do what they were told, but question things, challenge things, provided alternatives, and we were heard out. That's not the way things really work in a military chain of command, having been in the military. And the, the agency was being led more and more by former military officers who wanted to lead the clandestine service as if it was the Marine Corps or the Rangers or whatever, which are fantastic organizations, but the mindset is necessarily different because we're spying. Our job is not to duke it out or fight it out or kill people. Our job is to steal secrets without ever having those secrets known to have been compromised, not to fight our way out of things, but to sneak our way out of things and make sure that the president, the military, the State Department, Treasury go down the road have the advantages to make the right decision. And if it is kinetic for the military to do it, we're protecting our service members. We're getting the bad guys as we should, but by an organization that's designed to do that. So we started uh, doing less to nurture the craft, the trade craft of espionage. We were investing less in the technology, which was evolving exponentially, um, which both aids and inhibits espionage, think of cyber, think of ubiquitous technical surveillance and how it's harder and harder to secretly meet people where there's cameras and retina scans and global tracking and telephones and such like that. But it was the culture, first and foremost, that I think took the biggest hit, which then led to those um, consequences of less investment in a, in a spy cadre, less investment in espionage, more focus on kinetic operations counterterrorism to the exclusion of what's Russia doing to us, what's China doing to us, what's Iran doing to us, North Korea, all of which I think we saw, particularly over the Trump years, and then 
as the U.S. government correctly pivoted back to great power competition uh, during the uh, in the outset of the Biden administration, things that we shouldn't have had to pivot as much had we been more balanced in doing what we were doing. So my book, kind of a two books in one, is here's spying and here's the beauty, art, fears, consequences, the realities, family, all that kind of stuff. And here's what happened after 9-11 that moved us away from some of that, which thankfully what I see, we're circling back to now. Just the other day, and uh, and people were right to like get on my case, the agency put out a tribute to Nathan Hale. Nathan Hale, for your viewers, he was a 21-year-old Yale graduate who died as a spy for George Washington. First mission, first time out, executed. And we have this statue since the time I was in the agency, you know, where he says, I regret my only regret is I have but one life to give for my country. And they're promoting this on their 75th anniversary because the agency's 75th birthday is this year. And I commented, I was like, you know, that's great. I respect what Nathan Hale did, but you know, I'd be more inspired by a statue of someone who succeeded and wasn't caught their first time out. Um, <laughs> and also not someone who was the representative of, you know, Yale, which was at that time, not only Ivy League, but all male and all white. And the agency, because I don't go to the campus uh, on a regular basis, just like yesterday reveals a statue of Harriet Tubman uh, to stand next to Nathan Hale. It almost brought me to tears. I was so happy because Harriet Tubman, you know, the, the, the pipeline of, of bringing, you know, slaves, runaway slaves out of the South, that's espionage. That's covert action. That's beautiful, right? And I was so delighted. There's just no way in the world I would have seen that my last four years in the agency, and you know, and there's no way that even during the Obama administration, agency leadership, which was a largely white, male, Ivy League educated establishment, would have thought of. So I'm really happy for them and hoping this continues to reflect positive trends. I love the point on Nathan Hale. I've made the same point about the Civil War statues over the years. Like, are you really that dead set on keeping statues around from guys who ultimately lost a war that uh, obviously had a lot more heinous things behind it? Yeah. So the Harriet Tubman uh, is a uh, nice uh, cherry on top of that one, though, for sure. It All right, last great. last question, Doug. Uh, you mentioned this chapter at the start of our conversation, so I'm hoping we can uh, finish with some version of it now. It's Alex and the Targeters which the CIA cut down significantly, but you were able to still include in this book. So why were they so sensitive about this story? And what is the version that you can share for me and my viewers right now? So I was um, in a senior position um, related to counterterrorism. I was in charge of what I'm allowed to say was South and Southwest Asia. So to your geography, but that's all those countries, which includes war zones and enemies and rivals and all sorts of interesting stuff. And uh, Alex was a senior targeting officer. Alex um, was someone who came up in the director of intelligence, which is now the director of analysis, uh, so an analyst, um, had kind of uh, disputes with um, management there, moved to the director of operations in the 90s before there was targeting. Alex was very smart, uh, knew the terrorist groups extremely well, very detailed, probably 
had as good a encyclopedic knowledge of all the players in these various terrorist groups, particularly Al Qaeda, as anyone in, in the agency. Um, Alex used that knowledge effectively to really court the favor of a lot of senior operations leaders who themselves were, were case officers. Uh, Alex was given increasing operational responsibility over agent and agent operations. So Alex was never trained as a case officer, never you know, had any experience as an operations, never served overseas and such. That's the background. That's an issue, but that's really not what I was getting to. My chapter got to how Alex, who didn't really have the same investment in agent operations, thought of agents as disposable. In some way shared what unfortunately President Trump viewed agents as like his view of the mafia and, and informants as rats, right? Stooges, snitches, that kind of stuff. In Alex's view, those agents were there to get an objective and if the cost was their life or in some cases <clears throat> these agents were joint cases with foreign intelligence partners who they were taking risks for the united states so be it if they lost on their equities alex was given increasing authority over some of these operations in other theaters than mine um i think unfortunately changed for the worst the way we prosecuted a lot of our counterintelligence focus, which was less about collecting intelligence from within the organizations to just finding the terrorists and killing them. Just keep killing them, keep moving through them. And even if you're burning up agents in the process of doing that, so be it. It was getting, it was 2018. Uh, the midterms were coming up. The former president wanted a big success. Uh, basically, he wanted Zawahiri. He wanted Zawahiri and he wanted Zawahiri uh, and Hamza bin Laden. Uh, by the midterm so that he could ride this as a success. Alex was given a lot of the um, leadership of those programs and basically ran a scorched earth approach to operations with agents that were long, painfully, patiently nurtured, who were in very high risk positions just to, you know, to get us as soon as we could, as close as we could to Zawahiri and Hamza. Hamza, as it would turn out, uh, during my tenure, we did remove the battlefield. We just couldn't confirm it for a long time. And that's part of the process. Zawahiri, as you all know, we just recently got. But the cost of Alex's doing business cost us any number of agents, um, cost us some important relationships with foreign partners, and still didn't get Zawahiri and certainly didn't get Zawahiri in time. So we basically threw a lot of chips into the pot with no return and those chips were people. So that's the bottom line of the story. I was saying that how in the world does a spy service render that authority to a person like that? But the person achieved as they did because they made operational leaders look good because metrics was the business. How many people were removed off the battlefield? How many people were killed? We could shop to Congress and show you know, what we call print porn, you know, videos of, of strikes and such, which they loved and th would throw money at the, at the program. But for as much as we were doing the whack-a-mole thing, we weren't really turning the tide on terrorism, which we had found now had decentralized, metastasized around the world. The Islamic, uh, the Islamic State grew 
kind of without our taking close attention because we were preoccupied otherwise. But to give responsibility over agent operations to someone, not just that they were a targeter, but their perspective and that operational leaders supported Alex because Alex made them look good. And they could take Alex to the White House. They could take Alex to Congress. Alex knew the stuff. Uh, and the metrics that she helped to accrue certainly made, made them look good. But Alex is the same person who's been in the press uh, for having picked the wrong people to render <laughs> and put in jail uh, with no apologies for having done so. Um, and for having been on, you know, picking the wrong person to be at the end of the Hellfire missile at times. So that was a sad transition that I think only could happen because the agency had lost its way, had become part paramilitary, had sort of moved away from this investment first and foremost as a spy service, its commitment to its agents, its commitment to stealing secrets so that we don't have to be killing people. Ideally, we could avoid those things, mitigate those things, or find other ways to do them, or enable our military to do them. And I, I would tell you that I'd love to say that, oh, you know, Director Burns must have read my book, because look at all these things he's doing. But it's not that I'm that smart. It's the things the agency had to do mm -hmm. to restore its credibility, which it, I think, has done magnificently in Ukraine. Um, the declassified intelligence, which is precedent setting, a little scary at times, shows that we're stealing secrets. And a lot of those secrets, believe me, ever said, oh, it's not spies, it's, you know, signals, intelligence. No, a lot of it is also spies on the ground. And sometimes there are clues in the releases that tell you this comes from multiple streams of intelligence, which includes human sources. So I'd like to see this trend going. I think we're restoring our credibility with the American people, with foreign partners, doing the job, trying to catch up on tradecraft issues and technology, restoring our credibility with those people who partner with us, be they agents or be they foreign partners. And ideally a trend that, that will continue. And hopefully they regain that sense of humanity that you say existed when you first got into the CIA in the mid-1980s, but has sadly vanished more and more over time. He is Douglas London. The new book is The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Doug, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this excellent book. Thank you. It's all my pleasure. Thank you to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to Joshua Bates for the video editing. If you have any video editing needs, hit him up on Instagram at Forger Digital. Thanks as always to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.